This is Thank with DJ Tequesta, your favorite 70s funk history podcast. I'm DJ Tequesta, a music head, historian, Haitian, and big ass nerd. This podcast will explore the different 70s funk scenes and cities across the United States of America. If you love music and history, you've come to the right place. For each funk scene, we're going to talk about the indigenous history, who the black women were, the best songs to smoke to, and more. Each episode is accompanied by playlists curated by me, DJ Tequesta, on YouTube and Spotify. You can find the playlist in the show notes or search DJ Tequesta on YouTube and Spotify. So sit back and relax, because it's time to get stank, y'all. Bay Area, what up? In 1969, one of the most legendary funk bands out the Bay rocked the Harlem Cultural Festival, documented by the film Summer of Soul. Sly and the Family Stone out of Vallejo, California was on the rise and taking the funk world by storm. But before we get to that, we gotta go way back. The region we call the Bay Area is the ancestral homeland of the Ohlone peoples. Consisting of multiple tribes in at least eight different languages, the Ohlone never saw themselves as one people. The name Ohlone is one of colonial determination and used to group the peoples of the region. The Spanish colonizers first encountered the Ohlone peoples in 1769. By 1777, the Catholics built six missions, with Mission San Francisco de Assisi, also called Mission Dolores, being the first. San Francisco is the Italian translation of Saint Francis, who was born in Assisi, Umbria, Italy, and died in 1226. The nickname, Mission Dolores, was because of a nearby creek named Oroyo de los Dolores, or the Creek of Sorrows. The Catholics used these structures to subjugate and exploit the indigenous peoples. The so-called missions served as death camps and points of resource extraction for the Spanish colonizers. The irony is unlost, as Francis of Assisi's live testimony was that greed causes suffering both for the victims and the perpetrators. But we'll be here all day if we get into the dangerous inconsistencies of the Catholic Church. Anyways, the settlers of New Spain would fight the Mother Empire in a war of independence from 1810 to 1821, formally creating the United Mexican States, also known as Mexico. It's always important to note, the nation-state Mexico is a white supremacist settler state, and the indigenous and African peoples would fare no better compared to the European regimes. So yes, white Mexicans, and yes, y'all are white. Y'all are just part of the white diaspora, just like the rest of these white Latin folks. The term Mexico is indigenous to the region and tied to the Mexica people, called the Aztec by colonial powers. In the 1840s, American settlers would make their colonizing ways into now Mexican territory, eventually resulting in land disputes and the Mexican-American War. On February 2nd, 1848, a peace treaty will be signed, expanding the USA empire westward across Turtle Island and decreasing Mexico's territory by 50%. For as momentous as this would be, just a few weeks earlier on January 24, 1848, a discovery by carpenter James Marshall would be the true harbinger of change to come. 
from 1848 to 1852, close to 300,000 people had flocked to the bay in search of gold. In addition to the Americans, thousands from places like Chile, Hawaii, China, and Australia would try their luck. Over 90% of the migrants were men, creating a young, sexually fluid, multi-ethnic society. While the discovery of gold in 1848 generated rumors and buzz, USA President James Polk's announcement in the fall of 1848 really kicked things off. The population of San Francisco, known then as Yerba Buena, was 500 in 1847 and grew to 150,000 by 1852. About 10 to 20,000 came in 1848, but the first big migration in search of gold came in 1849. Known as the 49ers, yep, that's what the football team got their name, these folks will be the most fortuitous in individual mining, as individual yields will decrease in each year after that. These settlers were ambitious and organized. They created a state constitution by October 1849 and had a vote one month later. One year later, on September 9, 1850, California would be admitted to the USA as its 31st state. The 49ers pursued riches with ambition and violence. Because remember, the native peoples were still there and had aboriginal rights as landowners. So how? You create a whole state and claim land when other people have right to that land? You make it legal to kill them. California's first governor, Peter Burnett, said, a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct. He walked his talk too. With the help of the federal government, the young state appropriated $1.7 million, over $50 million today, to obtain weapons and arm local death squads. Sound familiar? Many communities offered bounties for Indian heads, scalps, ears, and other means of proving their deaths. This publicly subsidized Genocidal campaign and pursuit of land exploitation created markets for violent settlers all across California. Shasta City would offer $5 for every California Indian head. Communities like Marysville and Honey Lake had similar programs. Interestingly enough, it was most of the business around the gold mining industry that proved the most profitable. Unsuccessful miners found that there was more money to be made murdering Indians instead of mining, often bringing horses filled with severed heads of native peoples. Henry Wells and William Fargo provided financial services to the area, creating their very corrupt and predatory bank, Wells Fargo. Levi Strauss figured that the miners needed tough clothing and created the best mining pants, also known as Levi jeans. The gold rush would prove disastrous for the natural environment though. Rivers would clog with sediment, Forces were decimated to produce timber and water supplies poisoned. The region of California, once home to close to one-third of the indigenous population on Toto Island, home to over 200 languages, would see a 95% population decline by the time California Governor Gavin Newsom gave a formal apology in 2019, more than 168 years after the state of California's first reign of terror on the indigenous peoples. Throughout all this, the Ohlone people still resisted and maintained their presence in the Bay Area. In 1969, the same year Sly and the Family Stone rocked Harlem, the first American Indian Studies program was established at San Francisco State University. While the Ohlone have no collective territory and no recognized legal status, 
You can get a taste of Ohlone cuisine at Cafe Ohlone in Berkeley, California. And at 80 Julian Avenue in the Mission District of San Francisco, a new seven-story Native Culture Center is projected to be finished by 2025. Just a few blocks away from the 16th Street BART station, the village will deliver multi-dimensional approaches to wellness, promote spiritual resistance, and the continued unification of the indigenous peoples of the Bay. The same year Indigenous scholars would begin their studies at San Francisco State would be the same year a community initiative would capture the nation. In January 1969, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense Free for Children Breakfast program would revolutionize the country. The efforts began at St. Augustine Episcopal Church on 29th and Telegraph. What was the Panthers doing there? Well, they held the regular meetings there and a pastor served as a spiritual advisor. On the first morning of operation, that Saturday, 11 children would be fed. By the end of the week, 135. By the end of the year, 20,000 children would be fed across 20 cities. And in 1975, the federal government would permanently offer free breakfast in public schools. Party members and church volunteers, like Ruth Beckford, would partner with local grocery stores to get donations, work with nutritionists on helpful breakfast options for children, and prepared and served the food free of charge. The community's focus on the needs of black children created light and opportunity for so many, and serves as a reminder that black children will always deserve our love, compassion, and energy. And across the rest of the Bay, Bradley Lomax and Johnny Lacey were trailblazing a new path for black disability rights activists everywhere. Johnny Lacey was born in 1937, Arkansas, and grew up in California. In 1956, while studying to be a nurse at San Francisco General Hospital, she was diagnosed with polio at 19. Her conditions progressed to needing an iron lung to breathe and leading her to navigate the world in a wheelchair. In 1958, Johnny decided to go back to school and attend San Francisco State University. It was here where she experienced ableism and discrimination because at the time, Johnny's disability did not have any legal protections and no right to receive accommodations. She would finish with a degree in speech therapy but was not permitted to participate in graduation, being forced to sit in the stands. Brad Lomax was born in 1950 in Philly. He was the oldest of three children and had an active childhood. He was already organizing with the first chapter of the Washington DC chapter of the Panthers when he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and began navigating the world with a wheelchair. He moved to Oakland in 1973 and immediately saw the struggles of navigating the transit system with a disability. He saw that folks with disabilities were regularly denied education and that there were few services to help them find housing or jobs, especially if they were black and disabled. Lacey and Lomax would find community with each other. In addition to her anti-poverty work, Johnny Lacey was a leader in the independent living movement. 
The movement held that a person with a disability has the right to control and direct their own life and the right to actively participate in all aspects of community to any extent they choose. Johnny often spoke out about being isolated from the black community because of ableism and from the disability community because of racism. In 1972, she would co-found the Berkeley Center for Independent Living, the first of its kind in the USA. She would then become the Director of Community Resources for Independent Living in Hayward, California, establishing the space as a premier disability service center for people in Southern Alameda County. Brad Lomax would connect with Lacey and the Independent Living Movement. In 1975, Lomax worked with the founders of the center in Berkeley to open another site in East Oakland with the support of the Black Panther Party. Lomax was also instrumental in one of the longest sit-ins of a federal building. In 1977, Lomax and other activists won a landmark victory in getting federal laws to be enforced, which prohibited ableist discrimination from any program or service that received federal funding. Known as the 504 sit-in, the victory was the most significant disability rights win in USA history at the time. There is a myopic historical record that limits the role of the Black Panther Party to only providing food during the sit-in, but there was so much more involved. They were instrumental in publicizing the sit-in and provided funds for activists to travel and advocate in DC. The Unified Advocacy communicated disability as a construction of society and that society's social and physical structures should be in alignment with the livelihood of all who have need. Johnny would transition to ancestorhood in 2010 at the age of 73. Brad Lomax would transition in 1984 at the age of 33 due to complications from multiple sclerosis. We honor them and many more black disability rights activists who refuse to accept that they are not worthy of a dignified life. I am recording this in February 2022, 50 years after Johnny and Brad would meet each other, which means we are in our third year of the coronavirus pandemic. In addition to being a mass death event, this has also been a mass disabling event. We know that the Rona is impacting many people for months and years, weakening immune systems and changing the constitution of their minds and bodies. As we honor those who have transitioned, it is imperative that we recognize the ableism that is coursed through the paradigms and strategies towards the pandemic. There are many immunocompromised people who cannot take the vaccine. There are many people who no longer have access to caretakers. As we continue to build our society, we must reject the eugenicist framework that anyone is worth sacrificing. As the great scholar, Dr. Angel Love Miles writes, replicating dominant attitudes towards disability will only serve to further marginalize us. We must do better, y'all. To show my lady just what I think she needs to me. Oh, I'm stepping out. Now that we've set the scene, let's get into the music. We're going to highlight the different songs of the music playlist that capture the different sounds and themes of the 70s Bay Area. For my smokers, we have Welcome by Santana and Skin I'm In by Sly and the Family Stone. A graduate of Mission High School, Carlos Santana was the frontman for this band. You might know him from the hit song, Maria, Maria, oh, 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 oh. So, sorry, sorry, sorry. 
but he's been rocking for a long time. He comes from a long line of musicians and inherited his love of music from his father. Coming out of Vallejo High School, it was truly a family affair as siblings Freddie, Rose, and Sylvester Stone give you the funk you need to take you higher. Legendary bass player and band member Larry Graham is the uncle of popular rapper Aubrey Graham, also known as Drake. In the It's Over and I Only Need to Block You category, we have I'm Glad I Got Over You by Jeanette Jones and You're No Good by Two Things in One. Coming out of Kennedy High School in Richmond, California, Two Things in One had some of the best vocals, drum breaks, and guitar play in the bay. For the best songs to get dressed up with your boo, we have Steppin' Out by H. Andrews and This Time It's Real by Tyro Power. Steppin' Out is one of my favorite tracks, as H. Andrews' smooth vocals helps you and your boo get it together before a night out. Of Mexican and Greek heritage, Tyro Power band leader Emilio Castillo got his start at Irvington High School in Fremont and been rocking for over 50 years. This Time It's Real is feeling sure in love and what a feeling it is. For my conspiracy brothers, we have while We Went to the Moon by Tower Power and Peace Everybody by Azteca. With Mexican band leaders out of McClemens High School in West Oakland, Azteca gives you big fun as they sing that we gotta have peace for the people and love for each other. And for a good day, we have Reach Up by Santana and River Boulevard by the Pointer Sisters. And I say, isn't it just a beautiful day, sings the graduates of Castlemont High School and Oakland Tech. The sisters out of Oakland would go on to have a legendary career and you can find their star down the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And that's Thank with DJ Tequesta. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at DJ Tequesta to check out our newest content and find links to our music playlists. And that's DJ T-E-Q-U-E-S-T-A. You can find the music playlist in the show notes or search DJ Tequesta on Spotify and YouTube. Each playlist features tracks that showcase the local sonic diversity of each funk scene. Remember to give us five stars on the rating and a review if you're feeling funky. Enjoy the music till next time, and remember, breathe and listen to funk.